Chapter One of The House of the Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The House of the Arrow by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter One Letters of Mark. Measures Frobisher and Hazlitt, the solicitors on the east side of Russell Square, countered amongst their clients a great many who had undertakings established in France, and the firm was very proud of this branch of its business. It gives us a place in history, Mr. Jeremy Hazlitt used to say, for it dates from the year 1806, when Mr. James Frobisher, then our very energetic senior partner, organized the escape of hundreds of British subjects who were detained in France by the edict of the first Napoleon. The firm received the thanks of His Majesty's government, and has been fortunate enough to retain the connection thus made. I look after that side of our affairs myself." Mr. Hazlitt's daily batch of letters, therefore, contained as a rule a fair number bearing the dark blue stamp of France upon their envelopes. On this morning of early April, however, there was only one. It was addressed in a spidery, uncontrolled hand with which Mr. Hazlitt was unfamiliar, but it bore the postmark of Dijon, and Mr. Hazlitt tore it open rather quickly. He had a client in Dijon, a widow, Mrs. Harlow, of whose health he had had bad reports. The letter was certainly written from her house, La Maison Grenelle, but not by her. He turned to the signature. Waberski, he said with a frown. Boris Waberski? And then, as he identified his correspondent, oh, oh, yes, yes. He sat down in his chair and read. The first part of the letter was merely flowers and compliments, but halfway down the second page its object was made clear as glass. It was five hundred pounds. Old Mr. Hazlitt smiled and read on, keeping up, whilst he read, a one-sided conversation with the writer. "'I have a great necessity of that money,' wrote Boris, and, "'Oh, I'm quite sure of that,' said Mr. Hazlitt. "'My beloved sister, Jean-Marie,' the letter continued. "'Sister-in-law,' Mr. Hazlitt corrected. "'Cannot live for long, in spite of all the care and attention I give to her,' Boris Wawerski went on she has left me as no doubt you know a large share of her fortune already then it is mine yes one may say so and be favourably understood we must look at the facts with the eyes expedite me then by the recommended post a little of what is mine and agree my distinguished salutations hazlitt's smile became a broad grin he had in one of his tin boxes a copy of the will of jean-marie harlow drawn up in due form by her french notary at dijon by which every farthing she possessed was bequeathed without condition to her husband's niece and adopted daughter betty harlow jeremy hazlitt almost destroyed that letter he folded it his fingers twitched at it there was already actually a tear at the edges of the sheets when he changed his mind no he said to himself no with the boris waberskis one never knows and he locked the letter away on a ledge of his private safe he was very glad that he had when three weeks later he read in the obituary column of the times the announcement of mrs harlow's death and received a big card with a very deep black border in the french style from betty harlow inviting him to the funeral at dijon the invitation was merely formal he could hardly have reached Dijon in time for the ceremony had he started off at that instant. 
he contented himself with writing a few lines of sincere condolence to the girl and a letter to the french notary in which he placed the services of the firm at betty's disposal and then he waited i shall hear again from little boris he said and he heard within the week the handwriting was more spidery and uncontrolled than ever hysteria and indignation had played havoc with wabeski's english also he had doubled his demand it is outside belief he wrote nothing has she left to her so attentive brother there is something here i do not much like it must be one thousand pounds now by the recommended post you have always had the world against you my poor boris she say with the tears all big in her dear eyes but i make all right for you in my will and now in nothing i speak of course to my niece ah that hard one she snap her fingers at me is that a behaviour one thousand pounds mister otherwise there will be awkwardnesses yes people do not snap them the fingers at boris wabelski without the payment so one thousand pounds by the recommended post or awkwardnesses and this time boris wabelski did not invite mr hazlitt to agree any salutations distinguished or otherwise but simply signed his name with a straggling pen which shot all over the sheet mr hazlitt did not smile over this letter he rubbed the palms of his hands softly together then uh, we shall have to make some awkwardnesses too he said hastily and he locked the second letter away with the first but mr hazlitt found it a little difficult to settle to his work there was that girl out there in the big house at dijon and no one of her race near her he got up from his chair abruptly and crossed the corridor to the offices of his junior partner. "'Jim, you were at Monte Carlo this winter,' he said. "'For a week,' answered Jim Frobisher. "'I think I ask you to call on a client of ours who has a villa there, Mrs. Harlow?' Jim Frobisher nodded. "'I did, but Mrs. Harlow was ill. There was a niece, but she was out.' "'You saw no one, then?' Jeremy Hazlitt asked no that's wrong jim corrected i saw a strange creature who came to the door to make mrs harlow's excuses a russian boris wabersky said mr hazlitt oh that's the name mr hazlitt sat down in a chair tell me about him jim jim frobisher stared at nothing for a few moments he was a young man of twenty-six who had only during this last year succeeded to his partnership though quick enough when action was imperative he was naturally deliberate in his estimates of other people's characters and a certain awe he had of old jeremy hazlitt doubled that natural deliberation in any matters of the firm's business he answered at length he is a tall shambling fellow with a shock of grey hair standing up like wires above a narrow forehead and a pair of wild eyes he made me think of a marionette whose limbs have not been properly strung i should imagine that he was rather extravagant and emotional he kept twitching at his moustache with very long tobacco-stained fingers the sort of man who might go off at the deep end at any moment mr hazlitt smiled that's just what i thought is he giving you any trouble asked jim not yet said mr hazlitt but mrs harlow is dead and i think it very likely that he will did he play at the tables oh, yes rather high said jim i suppose that he lived on mrs harlow i suppose so said mr hazlitt and he sat for a while while in silence 
then it's a pity you didn't see betty harlow i stopped at dijon once on my way to the south of france five years ago when simon harlow the husband was alive betty was then a long-legged slip of a girl in black silk stockings with a pale clear face and dark hair and big eyes rather beautiful mr hazlitt moved in his chair uncomfortably that old house with its great garden of chestnuts and sycamores and that girl alone in it with an aggrieved and half-crazed man thinking out awkwardnesses for her mr hazlitt did not like the picture jim he said suddenly would you arrange your work so that you could get away at short notice if it becomes advisable jim looked up in surprise excursions and alarms as the old stage directions have it were not recognized as a rule by the firm of frobisher and hazlitt if its furniture was dingy its methods were stately clients might be urgent but haste and hurry were words for which the firm had no use no doubt somewhere around the corner there would be an attorney who understood them yet here was mr hazlitt himself with his white hair and his curious round face half babyish half supremely intelligent actually advocating that his junior partner should be prepared to skip to the continent at a word no doubt i could said jim and mr hazlitt looked him over with approbation jim frobisher had an unusual quality of which his acquaintances even his friends knew only the outward signs he was a solitary person very few people up till now had mattered to him at all and even those he could do without it was his passion to feel that his life and the means of his life did not depend upon the purchased skill of other people and he had spent the spare months of his life in the fulfilment of his passion a half-decked sailing-boat which one man could handle an ice-axe a rifle an inexhaustible volume or two like the ring in the book these with the stars and his own thoughts had been his companions on many lonely expeditions and in consequence he had acquired a queer little look of aloofness which made him at once noticeable amongst his fellows a misleading look since it encouraged a confidence for which there might not be sufficient justification it was just this look which persuaded mr hazlitt now this is the very man to deal with creatures like boris Wabersky, he thought but he did not say so aloud what he did say was it may not be necessary after all betty harlow has a french lawyer no doubt he is adequate besides and he smiled as he recollected a phrase in Wabersky's second letter betty seems very capable of looking after herself we shall see he went back to his own office and for a week he heard no more from dijon his anxiety indeed was almost forgotten when suddenly startling news arrived and by the most unexpected channel jim frobisher brought it he broke into mr hazlitt's office at the sacred moment when the senior partner was dictating to a clerk the answers to his morning letters sir cried jim and stopped short at the sight of the clerk mr hazlitt took a quick look at his young partner's face and said uh, we will resume these answers godfrey later on the clerk took his shorthand notebook out of the room, and Mr. Hazlitt turned to Jim Frobisher. Now, what's your bad news, Jim? Jim blurted out, Wabersky accuses Betty Harlow of murder. What? Mr. Hazlitt sprang to his feet. 
Jim Frobisher could not have said whether incredulity or anger had the upper hand with the old man, the one so creased his forehead, the other so blazed in his eyes. "'Little Betty Harlow?' he said in a wondering voice. "'Yes. Waberski has laid a formal charge with the prefect of police at Dijon. He accuses Betty of poisoning Mrs. Harlow on the night of April the 27th.' "'But Betty's not arrested?' Mr. Hazlitt exclaimed no but she's under surveillance mr hazlitt sat heavily down in his armchair at his table extravagant uncontrolled these were very mild epithets for boris wabirsky here was a devilish malignity at work in the rogue a passion for revenge just as mean as could be imagined how do you know all this jim he asked suddenly i have had a letter this morning from dijon you exclaimed mr hazlitt and the question caught hold of jim frobisher and plunged him too among perplexities in the first shock of the news the monstrous fact of the accusation had driven everything else out of his head and now he asked himself why after all had the news come to him and not to the partner who had the harlow estate in his charge yes it is strange he replied and here's another queer thing the letter doesn't come from betty harlow but from a friend a companion of hers anne upcott mr hazlitt was a little relieved betty had a friend with her then that's a good thing he reached out his hand across the table let me read the letter jim frobisher had been carrying it in his hand and he gave it now to jeremy hazlitt it was a letter of many sheets, and Jeremy let the edges slip and nicker under the ball of his thumb. "'Have I got to read all this?' he said ruefully, and he set himself to his task. Boris Waberski had first of all accused Betty to her face. Betty had contemptuously refused to answer the charge, and Waberski had gone straight off to the prefect of police. He had returned in an hour's time, wildly gesticulating and talking aloud to himself he had actually asked Anne Upcott to back him up. Then he had packed his bags and retired to an hotel in the town. The story was set out in detail with quotations from Waberski's violent, crazy talk, and as the old man read, Jim Frobisher became more and more uneasy, more and more troubled. He was sitting by the tall, broad window which looked out upon the square, expecting some explosion of wrath and contempt but he saw anxiety peep out of Mr. Hazlitt's face and stay there as he read. More than once he stopped altogether in his reading, like a man seeking to remember, or perhaps to discover. But the whole thing's as clear as daylight, Jim said to himself impatiently, and yet, and yet. Mr. Hazlitt had sat in that armchair during the better part of the day, during the better part of thirty years how many men and women during those years had crossed the roadway below this window and crept into this quiet oblong room with their grievances their calamities their confessions and had passed out again each one contributing his little to complete the old man's knowledge and sharpen the edge of his wit then if mr hazlitt was troubled there was something in that letter or some mission from it which he himself in his novitiate had overlooked he began to read it over again in his mind to the best of his recollection but he had not got far before mr hazlitt put the letter down 
surely sir cried jim it's an obvious case of blackmail mr hazlitt awoke with a little shake of his shoulders blackmail oh that of course jim mr hazlitt got up and unlocked his safe he took from it the two waberski letters and brought them across the room to jim here's the evidence as damning as any one could wish jim read the letters through and uttered a little cry of delight the rogue has delivered himself over to us yes said mr hazlitt but to him at all events that was not enough he was still looking through the lines of the letter for something beyond which he could not find then what's troubling you asked frobisher mr hazlitt took his stand upon the worn hearth-rug with his back towards the fire this jim and he began to expound in ninety-five of these cases out of a hundred there is something else something behind the actual charge which isn't mentioned but on which the blackmailer is really banking as a rule it's some shameful little secret some blot on the family honour which any sort of public trial would bring to light and there must be something of that kind here the more preposterous Waberski's accusation is, the more certain it is that he knows something to the discredit of the Harlow name, which any Harlow would wish to keep dark. Only I haven't an idea what the wretched thing can be. It might be some trifle, Jim suggested, which a crazy person like Waberski would exaggerate. Yes, Mr. Hazlitt agreed, that happens, a man brooding over imagined wrongs and flighty and extravagant besides yes that might well be jim jeremy hazlitt spoke in a more cheerful voice let us see exactly what we do know of the family he said and he pulled up a chair to face jim frobisher and the window but he had not yet sat down in it when there came a discreet knock upon the door and a clerk entered to announce a visitor not yet said mr hazlitt before the name of the visitor had been mentioned very good sir said the clerk and he retired the firm of frobisher and hazlitt conducted its business in that way it was the real thing as a firm of solicitors and clients who didn't like its methods were very welcome to take their affairs to the attorney round the corner just as people who go to the real thing in the line of tailors must put up with the particular style in which he cuts their clothes mr hazlitt turned back to jim let us see what we know he said and he sat down in the chair. End of chapter 1